Hey everybody, The Talking Book is a non-profit audiobook recording studio in Asheville, North Carolina. If you want to make an audiobook, go to thetalkingbook.org, that's thetalkingbook.org. Check out these amazing writers, narrators, indie publishers. Come to Asheville, we record books in a booth, here's the show. Hi gang, this is Chris Hartram of The Talking Book. It's good to be here talking to all of you. I hope the ones who still listen to the show are well, and I hope that the people that no longer listen to the show are great too. What's new with me and my family? Well, we just got back from the beach. We go to Topsail Island every year with my parents and three brothers, and now my partner Danny, because we got kiddos. Her parents come too, and it's a double family beach trip for a week. Um, I hadn't been anywhere since the pandemic started, like most of you, but uh, yeah, it was good. I don't feel necessarily refreshed because I partied so much, you know, because uh, my three brothers hadn't seen him in a while, so four bros getting together, um, you know... Just, you know, <laughs> you know. But anyway, yeah, uh, I'm tan. My sons are tan. Uh, I'm also brain dead, as you can tell, as you can probably see. You can hear it. Does anyone else get that from beach trips? You know, you, you go to the beach, you're trying to get refreshed, you're relaxing, but then you come back and your brain's been vacuumed out of your head. And, uh,. I think it's from, <clears throat> no, I know it's from, it's from the drinking, and it's from the sun, and it's from the drive, and also it's from probably the post-trip blues, because you're back, you're away from it all. You go to get away from it all, and then you're back, and you're away from it all, and uh, beach trip drinking is uh, is another kind of drinking. It's, uh, it's above drinking, or below. I think I'm going to do... <clears throat> Having said that, I think I'm going to do Sober November because it's too late to do um, October anymore. Yeah, it's almost over. Anyway, I'll keep you posted on that. The beach is good. Uh, it's, a, it's a good time. I'm dying. I'm here today to give you a reading from Lee Madalone. Uh, she wrote Homemaking, which came out from Harper Perennial in February of this year. And uh, Lee's a powerful new voice in fiction. Her novel is about the intersection of three lives, coming to grips with identity, family legacy, and what it means to make a house a true home. And Lee also lives around here, and she's cool. So please enjoy this reading. I'm going to read the opening from my novel, Homemaking, which came out in February from Harper Perennial. This section is called War Child. Before, before, a young woman in a modest but pristine apartment in Tokyo paints a castle on paper, unlike any castle in Japan. Where is this castle? Her mother, who secretly writes poetry on gum wrappers, whose ancestors created beauty with katana rather than pen, asks her daughter. She starts to answer, but her mother grabs the paper and flips it over. Your mind is a ship, she says. 
It will take you away from me and leave me here alone. Your hair is dirty. Why don't you do something about that? So this young woman, her name lost to the wrinkles of history, washes her hair, and it is clean and black and straight and falls at the arch of her bony shoulders. She is all bones, lanky and bendy like a strip of Wrigley's. We need, her mother says, and she probably said more tea or American Co. or toothpaste, and sent her daughter out into the noontime street, into the crowded Tokyo Saturday, where families are sitting in parks or visiting grave sites of their mothers and fathers and grandmothers, who were unlucky enough to live in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Though the events happened six years ago, these relatives still come here in order to remember, to show that they have not moved on entirely to Rockabilly and look and Hirohito's beloved Superman, that they can still lay white chrysanthemums on their ancestors' tombs and thank their new god they never had to see Uncle Ryu like that, like they say he was found. And she is walking right beside the monument, and she stops. A man in uniform with white skin and blue eyes is kneeling in front of one of these tombs. And she may or may not have been angry at this intruder, at his intrusion, but more likely what she is feeling is her heart coming alive in her cotton shirt because he is different and beautiful, but likely just different. Beauty often being simply an aberration from the norm, a departure from her mother, from her own black hair. And because she is just as bold as her daughter will be, she will go up to this man and tap him on the shoulder and ask him if he would like to take a walk with her to Kinokunuya, where she is on the way to buy flour and toothpaste where they also sell frozen Salisbury steak paired with carrots and peas. And his face is long and bony, and she identifies with this, and they walk off together down the cobblestone street. Things happen, including a conversation in a park and a sneaking out to go to a club where other white men dance with brown girls, and they drink French aperitif and Japanese whiskey and are drunk but not too drunk to recognize joy. And they go to his room and she leaves a kiss on his cheek in the dark of the morning. She has slept too long, but she knows her mother won't wake for another three hours, and she is running down the street, back to the apartment, and inside, now, a problem is growing. That problem is Ayumi. Ayumi never knows her name is Ayumi because her mother, upon finding out she is pregnant, leaves home, prostrates herself at the door of a hospital, crying out in the midst of labor pains, and signs the baby over to the state, which the state doesn't want, because this baby is a baby with blue eyes and brown skin, and, to make matters worse, this baby is female. No one will want this baby. Some Franciscan nuns, some sisters, take this baby and place it in their orphanage, their brown faces peeking out from behind white habits, brown fingers reaching out of draping white sleeves to push the brown children with blue and green eyes on a merry-go-round painted with faded yellow ducks. And, months later, an American officer comes in with his wife, and this child overhears one of the sisters say, Loveland, the name like a line of poetry. The child who has poetry in her blood. And this toddler, right as the American officer is walking by, reaches out a tiny two-year-old hand and touches the arm of his jacket, and he stops walking. He had his eyes on a baby boy on the other side of the room, a strong haunched Japanese boy. But he stops and he swivels and he looks at her, this child with blue eyes and brown skin, a girl, but that doesn't matter. 
this child is his. Back to America, back to the States with his big boned, not so beautiful blonde wife and his three blonde haired, blue eyed, white skinned natural borns of six and eight and 10 years old in a plane back over the Pacific, over California, the, the McDonald's arches glowing in the sun, which this grown Hafu will remember seeing from the plane, though her own daughter will disavow this, will say that there is no way anyone could possibly see the golden arches from up in a plane, much less a two-year-old. And they speed over the Mojave with its yipping coyotes and endless dust, and they land in another desert, in Tucson, a place without castles but with chrysanthemums on graves, just for different, less atomic reasons. And let's say that she is the only brown-skinned girl in any bassinet in that residential development in 1953, the only brown-skinned, blue-eyed girl riding her bicycle down Warbonnet Lane, hair pigtailed in the way that makes everyone think she is Navajo. Whatever she is, they know she isn't white, which means that she doesn't fit into this world of McDonald's arches and cosmopolitan, though by her 12th birthday, the neighborhood recognizes that she is undeniably beautiful, a petite girl, yet, like her wriggly bone of birth mother, all legs, with petite freckles, a petite nose, and a petite frame forged in bronze. Bronze, a shade that has become culturally desirable, as long as the shade isn't black, more alluring than the pasty skin of her adopted mother, her varicose veins hidden under tan nylons. She will learn that her beauty is a problem, that this is not something her mother can suffer, and her father will be oblivious. He, now promoted to brigadier general, always off in a hushed room with a group of men in press suits. And her bigger brothers will protect her from these abuses, sometimes, and she sews the holes in their jeans for them, because she loves them and they are not a wealthy family, military, unlike, but also like her family in Japan, who she will never know. They aren't really her family either. Sybil and boys. She discovers boys, rides on the backs of their motorcycles, sneaks out and eats mole and Mexican dives on the south side. And people still think she is Navajo, but they don't care because she is foxy. Perhaps more importantly, she has something to say. She devours Frieden and Reese and Plath and boys, at least at first, cannot help but fall at her feet especially in those bell-bottoms. And she gets out of the desert because she has known since she was a Navajo on a trike that she wanted to be a doctor, which is what she does. She leaves the desert to get her bachelor's at a liberal arts college in the icy Midwest where, in the winter, the boys, always the boys, have garbage can races in the frozen parking lot. And she likes one or two of these boys, but she is very focused on her studies not too focused, because she is smart, Mensa smart, and she doesn't have to do much studying, just a little more than her roommate, who has a photographic memory, which she will always envy, as she will repeatedly tell her own daughter. And she meets a man there, a handsome man, one kind of like her father, a man with a, hero with a heroic inclination. And he can speak of subatomic particles and Gertrude Stein in the same breath, and this she finds irresistible because she loves words, but she also wants to deliver babies. And so she falls for this man, Neil, a type of man whose complexity she will warn her daughter about, even though he doesn't go to her school and lives in Chicago. But he drives to her every other weekend, 
And in the summer, they go to Yellowstone, where they take 30-mile day hikes and camp out in the backwoods, always with a bear bell on her hip. And he takes photographs of waterfalls, her breasts, and she draws pictures of the local flora, wildflowers mostly. Her mother, too, could draw. And so they spend these undergraduate years like this. And when she receives the acceptance letter in the mail to a medical school back in the desert, and one in Chicago that is private and celebrated, but also much more expensive, she decides to return home, and he decides to return home with her. This is when she first realizes that she cannot rely on men. This is still when her baby is not yet a glimmer in her eye, when she's still focused on her studies, when the smell of McDonald's play places make her nauseous, the sight of a child not instigating any biological response, and she is busy, 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 mastering the body, attending lectures, dissecting cadavers, drawing blood, washing her hands, starting IVs, slicing into the abdomens of women she's never spoken to, washing her hands, placing her hands into someone's womb, not sleeping, not seeing Neil, learning the names of medicines, the words swirling in her dreams, giving epidurals, not sleeping, not seeing Neil, washing her hands. And when she comes home one day, she realizes he is not there, that he has not been there for a while. What happened to Neil is what happens to all former loves. He left her, but he never really left her. The first man, but not the last to go. The second is to be the father of her child, a charmer, not a renaissance man like the first one, but one she believes has good intentions. And their courtship is short, and it is easy, and they both agree that they want to get out of this desert, to a place with trees that shed leaves and snowfall and good schools, because now she wants a baby. She loves the smell of babies, all babies, of their baby shampoo, their wisps of hair she likes to wind around her fingers in the aisles of supermarkets. This is the sign that she's ready. And so they move across the country to a place of soft hills, to Virginia, into a house with a green yard and big windows through which she can already see a child rolling, laughing in the green. And she's a doctor now. And in this new place, she starts her own practice, and she's establishing herself, and she is ready to have this baby. And boy, does this baby come. And the labor is nothing like she could have imagined, though she has helped hundreds of women go through this same process, and she knows the scientific names for everything. But nothing can prepare her for the moments of pushing and breathing and panting and crying, and the feeling of her uterine walls contracting, and the moment when she hears that first cry of the baby, her baby, as she enters the world, a fucked up world, one with bad men and bad women and cruel fathers and cruel mothers. But nothing compares to this feeling of this baby, her baby. And this child falls into another doctor's hands and this mother is exhausted and overjoyed and all she can do is give the doctor a thumbs up and she lets her head fall back against the soaked paper pillow. And then the baby is placed in her arms and it's like the light of the room dims except for a halo around her and this baby. And whatever the men do, they come and go. Lovers, boyfriends come and go. She will have this moment and this life with this baby. And she will not be a perfect mother. She will give her daughter her eccentricities, a daughter who will feel that her mother is cold and removed sometimes. She is no hallmark card of motherhood. But this mother will do anything for her child because she has a responsibility to show her the goodness in a world full of despair to show her that she is loved when many babies out there are not loved, are given away, 
left in orphanages in hopes that some man and some woman or some man and man or woman and woman will walk by the right crib at the very moment that this baby extends a hand and grabs their coat. This baby, Chloe, will not suffer that. She will be loved from hospital bed to home. And that was Lee Madelon reading from her new book, Homemaking. You can get it now from harpercollins.com and everywhere books are sold. Why don't you get it at your local bookstore, like Malaprops here in Asheville? That'd be cool. Um, be sure to check out Lee's book and then go to thetalkingbook.org for more readings like this, full-length audiobooks. Thanks to Keegan Grambois, Holler Boys, Alex Sturgis for the lovely music, Dave Burr, my guy, uh, for his masterful editing skills. My name is Chris Hartram. Thanks for listening to me talk. Uh, Halloween is going to be fun. My children are going to be werewolves. Uh, and that's about it, everybody. I, I love you. And uh, the greatest werewolf movie ever made is obviously American Werewolf in London. Have a nice time, and I'm Chris. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit before I knew that you were there Like an angel who has forsaken certainty Sleeping in the square I was lit Door was passing over, and the window. Was